Well, my message today is not the message that's in your bulletin. Nancy was going to preach. She picked out the picture and the title and the unto God. Um, she's going to do that at a later date. I'm going to continue on in uh, my series on the Ten Commandments. I hope you've been enjoying those, or I hope that they've been speaking to you. Sometimes when God brings a message of truth and conviction, it's not always enjoyable at first, although what it produces is great. And so um, I'm going to continue on. This week we're on our sixth commandment. And I want to begin with Exodus 20, verse 13, which says this, You shall not murder. Now I know what you're thinking. I have not murdered. I have no intention to murder. This message is not for me. But if you know anything about what we've been talking about when we go through the Ten Commandments, it's not just what it says, the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law. And what is the spirit behind that? And in what ways do we all break this commandment? And so if we get a greater understanding of that, our, our response to God should be, God, show me in what ways this, you, you mean this for me, and then show me what I can do to give you glory to be able to follow that. You see, not only is murder against God's law, His will, and His plan, the root of murder should be avoided and dealt with immediately as it destroys the heart and soul, which was created for love. Therefore, the Bible makes a clear case that the root of this action is just as wrong and just as sinful as the action or the act of murder. If you see it in any other way, then you make, your, then you make yourself God, which is not a good place to be. As we study this crucial teaching, our focus should not be on the act only, but as it implies to us, we should be looking for any signs of the root that may be working in us. Hebrews 12, verses 14 and 15 tells us, Pursue peace with all people and holiness, without which no one will see the Lord. Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. Now listen, God says in His Word, if we don't pursue peace and we don't pursue holiness, then no one can see God. It doesn't take long to look out in the world today or watch the news or get on the Internet and see there's a lot of ill health in the world. There's a lot of anger. There's a lot of hatred. There's a lot of vengeance. There's a lot of judgment going on in the world right now. Even amongst people who call themselves Christians, and this is why we God implores us to say, understand what I'm speaking of. If, if you do not pursue peace and you do not pursue holiness, you will not see God. This is a, such an important topic that we need God's intervention and revelation so that we can be healed and follow uh, in His will. If we are not diligent to pursue peace with people and holiness with ourselves, then we allow the depravity of our sinful nature to overtake us. In doing so, we risk falling short of the glory of God and of the grace of God. How does this happen? It happens when we neglect to do our daily task of pulling the weeds in our life. How many people love pulling weeds? I saw one maybe, okay? Um, but to do it every day, to do it all the time. All, I will tell you, all it takes is a little while of not tending to a garden to see it overtaken by weeds and foreign invaders. 
Therefore, we must give due diligence to a Holy Spirit-led self-examination of anything in us that's attempting to bring offense or bring division or judgment of others and anything else that contaminates our souls. If we do not examine ourselves daily and repent when convicted by God, we allow bitter roots to consume us and cause great trouble in our lives and those around us. A few weeks ago, it was our Communion Sunday. Next week's going to be our Communion Sunday again. I told you at that time, because of the stuff that was going on in the church, I was not in a proper place to take Communion. Because the Bible tells us to examine our hearts, and if we're not, to not partake of it. So that we don't drink judgment to ourselves. I shared with you also that I asked another spiritual leader in the church if they could lead, and they were in the same spot as, as I was. And so by your prayers and through diligence, we've worked through that, and we will be taking communion next week. But it's because of the work of God, and that's why we need to understand this and work through things so that we can honor God in all that we do. This is why the study of the Ten Commandments is so important. We should be looking into the mirror of the law constantly, expecting to be convicted in order to make the necessary changes to preserve our hearts. We shouldn't go into the Word of God and say, all right, God, okay, yep, I agree with that, I'm all set. We should go into the Word of God and say, God, I know I'm a sinner. I know I'm wrong. Show me my error, and then show me how to make it right. But many times, if we're afraid of of a reprimand or afraid of being vulnerable before God, we don't go in expecting. But again, we are imperfect. God is perfect. We go into God expecting to be convicted, but we also expect His grace. He doesn't slap us on the back of the head and say, you should know better. He says, I love you. Of course you're not where I'm at, God says. But I want to make you become there. So if you are open for change, then God can bring change in your life. If you're not open, then you stay stuck in your ill health and in your hurts and in your wounds. When we go to God to the Ten Commandments and He brings conviction upon us, we expect to be convicted, not condemned, but then healed and forgiven so that we can go forward in better health. Unfortunately, too many today have taken advantage of God's grace and no longer present themselves openly to the Holy Spirit to be convicted that we might change with His grace and His power. One of the most common and destructive roots that tears apart an individual or a family or even the body of Christ many times is anger that is not dealt with and forgiven. And therefore, it is allowed to grow and manifest into consuming thoughts, consuming words and motivations and actions. This is the topic of our study today. Let us be diligent to examine it, to seek to understand it from all perspectives, and to ask God to help cleanse us, that we may cultivate holiness in the garden of our souls. This commandment is so much more than a warning against the physical act of killing another person. Jewish writings note that shaming another person publicly is like murder, since shame causes the blood to leave the face. Right? I see Rich shaking his head back there. Gossip and slander can also be considered murderous to the dignity of man as it can quickly destroy one's life and well-being. Another traditional teaching puts it this way. The evil tongue slays three persons. 
the utterer of the evil, the listener, and the one spoken about. Though you may never act out on the physical sin of murder, the longer you dwell on revenge, unchecked anger, unresolved frustration, judgment of others, and unforgiveness from a wounded or hardened heart, the deeper you are murdering your own heart and soul, along with whoever else is in the crosshairs. Understand that the thoughts of hatred and anger-fueled judgments of others don't just harden your heart. They make you judge over God's creation. James 4.11 says this, Do not speak evil of one another, brethren. He who speaks evil of a brother and judges his brother speaks evil of the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law, you are not a doer of the law, but a judge. Spoken or unspoken judgment, gossip, and slander all place us in a very dangerous position as judge over God's law. Regardless of how you see it, that is exactly how God sees it. We have not been given the responsibility, the authority, or the full perspective to judge anyone. Now, we are to judge sin, but we are not to judge others. James 4.12 says it this way, There is one lawgiver, that is God, who is able to save and to destroy. Who are you to judge another? God is the only one who can judge, and this is for a very important reason. We find reference to this reason in the teachings of Jesus, and I know you've all heard this, vo- this verse before. Matthew 7, verses 1 and 2. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the same judgment that you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure that you use, it will be measured back to you. The reason why we should never judge another is because when we judge others, now listen, when we judge others, we open the door of judgment against ourselves. The problem with this is that we are already guilty because of our sins. We've already already fallen short of the grace of God, of the glory of God. But God has declared us righteous due to the sacrifice of Jesus and the blood of Jesus. Think of it this way. By opening the door of judgment back to ourselves, in effect, we are removing the blood of Jesus from us. And therefore, we are asking God to punish us eternally. For this reason alone, we should never judge others. Now, what do I mean by judging others? Judgment is not only believing that someone is wrong in their thoughts or words or actions, but it is assuming that they are acting in a way to intentionally hurt others. We are assuming their motivation for why they are doing what they're doing is wrong. Like I said, we are to judge the fruits of their actions, but we are not to judge and say, this must be why they're doing it, or they're a bad person, or they're evil, whatever. We are not to judge the reasons for why they are doing it. We have no idea why they are doing what they are doing. Judgment is when we blame people for acting the way they are based solely on our assumptions or our limited perspective. Therefore, the sin of judgment is more of an assault on one's character than on their actions. And since most judgment starts or even stays as inner thoughts and meditations that we seldom speak out, the person being judged has no opportunity 
to defend his or her character or explain the cause or perspective of their actions. Oftentimes, the reason why people speak or act the way they do is because they have been wounded deeply by others. Yet instead of us praying for them or seeking to understand them or desiring to to help them and point them back to God, our sinful flesh jumps in the driver's seat and finds that it's easier to judge them. We not only lack the whole perspective of someone's past or current circumstances, we also have no idea of the ramifications we enter into by stepping into an area where only God is able to stand. Only God is the judge. We are commanded not to judge. Why? God is the only one who can judge for one simple reason. When He judges, just like anyone else, He opens the door of judgment on Himself. However, it has no effect on Him because He is perfect. He will always be declared innocent. There is no sin or no wrongdoing in God. The same cannot be said for us. Romans 3, 23 and 24 tells us, For all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We all stand guilty before God, every one of us. For we all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. Yet God in His infinite mercy extends His uncommon grace to those who humble themselves, to those who repent and turn to Him, accepting the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. And as great as redemption and forgiveness are, we throw it all away when we stand in judgment of others. God has justified us because of His grace, yet our choice to judge others removes that grace from our lives. Now, it's not behind me in the overhead, but you understand, we say the Lord's Prayer every week. And right after that prayer, it's not part of what we say, but right after that prayer in Scripture, it says that if you do not forgive others, then God will not forgive you. That's that, that's that cho- choice to stay in judgment. That's why God says, don't judge others. Because it will become, it will come back to you. Therefore, don't judge others. None of us can afford to lose the grace covering which has been given to us. If we truly understand these implications, we would spend significantly less time considering the actions of others. And we would set our focus and our attention on our own lives and on our own attitudes and our own actions. After all, that's what the Pharisees did. Remember? They weren't spending the Sabbath honoring God and keeping holy. They were spending the Sabbath judging people and judging Jesus. Right? We need to not have that Pharisaical attitude because it still moves today. We need to focus more on ourselves. After all, our lives are the only ones that we can change. We've each only been given authority to pick weeds out of our own gardens and not out of our neighbors. Well, there's another very, very important reason why we absolutely should not step into judgment of others and refuse to make diligent efforts to resolve anger and conflicts and confusion. This reason has not been justly taught in many churches today. Even though it is a solid biblical truth 
throughout Scripture that everyone should know and understand. You will find when I preach, if you haven't seen already, I use a lot of Scripture. Why? And I think I've shared this with you before. One of my favorite teachers is A.W. Tozer. And he once said, when I speak today, part of my sermon is going to be absolutely perfect, 100% perfect. And the rest of the time is when I'm speaking. In other words, when I speak the Word of God, that's perfect. And then I speak. Not that it's wrong, it's just not as imperfect as what God, as God's Word is. And so I will continue to use the Scripture, and I will use the Scripture to back up what I'm teaching. That's why I like to use Scripture. I'm not coming against any other person's way of teaching, but I like to teach using Scripture. Well, let me talk about the spiritual truth that is in Scripture, not just at one spot, but throughout Scripture. It's in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. It says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. In other words, listen to this, if you can see the person that you are fighting against, if you can see the person that you are arguing with, if you can see the person that you are confronting an issue with, then you are fighting the wrong enemy. We have to understand that our battle is a spiritual battle. It's not against flesh and blood. Too many times we, we, we refuse or we hesitate to confront things because of a personality thing or we think it's person to person. And yet God makes it absolutely clear it's not person to person. We wrestle not against flesh and blood but against spiritual forces, wickedness in heavenly places. It's not against flesh and blood. We do a great disservice to the body of Christ when it is incorrectly taught that there are no spiritual influences today like they were back in the time of Jesus. If you look at the ministry of Jesus, a lot of His miracles were when he cast out demons and when he, he cast evil spirits out of people, which meant there was great demonic influences in the people. The reason why Jesus spent a, lot, spent a lot of time teaching about demonic spiritual influences is because they inflict wounds on individuals and on relationships. But if you become stuck on thinking that this does not happen today, then you cut a big portion of biblical truth from your perspective and life application. For the Bible explicitly says this, for people that say that doesn't happen anymore. The Bible explicitly says this about the last days in which we are in. In the times that we are living right now today, there will be a spirit of the Antichrist in the world. Have you heard that verse? Let me take you there. It's in 1 John chapter 4, verse 3. It says, every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. Listen, you know as well as I do, there are people today in government, in the world, all over the place that say that Jesus is not from, the spirit, uh, from God. That Jesus is not the Son of God. It's, listen, it's not just their opinion. It's not just their wrong thought because it is wrong. What it is, it's the spirit of the Antichrist going through them and moving through them, trying to convince others that Jesus does not exist because Jesus is our only hope. Amen? Amen. Listen, that's, that's the spirit that's in the world and, and John said it. The spirit of the Antichrist. 
Listen. It is come in the flesh. It is not of God. And this is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard was coming and is now already in this world. There are spiritual influences already in this world. Whether you believe it or not, they are affecting the world. If this spirit is anti or against Christ, then naturally it will bring division. Naturally, it will seek death and destruction. Try to destroy our connection with Christ and the power that Jesus has in the church and in the earth today. Does that spirit affect Christians? You bet it does. Does that spirit uh, get into churches and bring division? You bet it does. That, that it, it's the spirit of Antichrist that seeks to destroy Christ in the world. But listen, this spirit of Antichrist is not just the devil walking around with pointed horns and a pitchfork. It is a spirit that moves through people trying to destroy the Christ in you. Seeking to destroy the Christ in our relationships. Seeking to destroy the Christ in our churches. And ultimately seeking to dismantle and to destroy the authority and the power in the body of Christ. We must be aware that this is going on right now as we speak. And every time that we say or even think that it doesn't exist, or doesn't exist at the rate at which it's happening today, we give even more power to the spirit of destruction. We allow it to work covertly, under the scenes, underground, in the shadows, in a way that continues to bring destruction because it is not being kept in check. How do you destroy the spirit that works in darkness? You bring it into the light. That's why we're teaching on it. If you're aware of it and you bring it into the light, you break all its power. That's, but if you're afraid or confused or don't believe it, you keep it in the darkness and that's where the enemy works is in darkness. Our goal is to bring it into the light without shame so God, the power of light through God, can break the power of the Spirit. We cannot allow that to happen to allow it to continue to affect our relationships. But don't just take my word for it. Let me show you in Scripture how quickly we can be moved powerfully by the Holy Spirit one moment and then suddenly be susceptible to the spirit of the enemy. Do you remember that time at the beginning of Jesus' ministry where he came back to the disciples and he said, who do people say that I am? And someone said, some said you're the Elijah, some said you're John the Baptist. You remember that part? I'm going to pick it up in Matthew chapter 16. Jesus said to them, starting at verse 15, Jesus said to them, who do you say that I am? Verse 16, Simon Peter answered and said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Verse 17, Jesus answered and said to him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. Bar-Jonah means that he was the son of Jonah. Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven revealed this to you. You see, Jesus tells Peter that this rock of his confession was not of his own thoughts or of his own knowledge or of his own intellectual assent, but that the Spirit of God the Father gave him this revelation. In making this statement, Jesus tells us that if we humble ourselves and remain open to Christ and all He's doing through us, 
then the Holy Spirit will reveal truth to our hearts and speak through us personally. Peter was humble and was used by God to share this huge biblical truth that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, which tells us that it takes a revelation of God for any of us to know Jesus. You don't just get to that thing and you realize that you know Jesus. You come to God openly and God personally reveals Himself to you as He did to Peter. Now you can imagine how proud Peter must have felt. Jesus just affirmed me. I'm teacher's pet. He just said how good I was because I knew this and no one else did. Why do I say that? Because I'm going to show you what happens right after that. And it shows you how quick that pride can enter even a strong Christian. Just like that, pride in Peter got the best of him and immediately opened him up for a different spirit to enter him and influence his words and actions. Just a few verses later in the same chapter, Matthew 16, verse 21, it says, From that time Jesus began to show to His disciples that He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Verse 22, then Peter, imagine this, took Jesus aside and began to rebuke Him, saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall not happen to you. Did you hear that? Peter became so full of pride that God was speaking through him that he thought he had the right to rebuke Jesus himself. Peter's pride began to tell Jesus that Peter would prevent this from happening. Yet pride is an open door for the enemy to speak through and influence you negatively. For we see how quickly things turn for Peter. Now this evil spirit is speaking through him because the pride opened the door. Notice Jesus' response. Matthew 16, 23. Remember, Jesus just affirmed him. Now notice his response in verse 23. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are an offense to me. You are not mindful of the things of God, but the things of men. Two things I want you to see here. Number one, Peter was on top of the world when Jesus affirmed him, and then suddenly he hits rock bottom. Like that. And number two, Jesus said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You see, Jesus wasn't calling Peter Satan. He was speaking directly to Satan who was speaking through Peter. It was a spirit working through Peter. And when there's division and when there's stuff that's against Christ, it's a spirit that works through people. Our, 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 our wrestle, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against spirit. That's why we can't afford to not confront things because what we are confronting is the spirit that's bringing division and not the person. The person we love and we want to be healed, but we need to come against that spirit which causes division. Now, if Satan, the spirit of division, can influence Peter, an apostle of Christ, how much more susceptible are we to the influences of the spirit, of this spirit? What do we need to know to prevent this from happening to us? First of all, we need to know that a spirit is allowed to enter and operate either through pride, an unconfessed sin, or through a wound that has not been healed or fully brought under the blood of Jesus Christ. 
You see, if there's a wound in your life from a time that you were hurt, let down, or rejected, a spirit can influence you to keep you stuck in your hurt, to keep you stuck in your pain, and prevent you from getting healed by Christ if you are not aware of what's going on. A spirit of fear, for example, may tell you that you can never be vulnerable again or never be out of control again because you will just be let down and hurt all over again. So what do you do? You over-control situations so you don't bring yourself back to that place again because now you're letting the Spirit teach you and guide you instead of God. In fact, many people will not even go to God and be vulnerable before God and say, God, I messed up, I sinned, or I'm stuck because they don't want to be vulnerable because the Spirit has told them, this evil spirit has told them to not be vulnerable. It's the spirit of the Antichrist because it works against the things of Christ. So the Spirit will tell you to over-control situations. And thus your pride will rise up and prevent you from becoming humble to, to admit that you need help, to ask others for assistance, and ultimately to respond to conviction from God that you desperately need an intervention from Jesus to change your situation and your life. It's not that person's fault. It's because of a wound that's there that allows that spirit to have them not to listen to God and to stay stuck in their pain. That's why we pray for people to come against that spiritual influences and to love others through to resolution. It is the work of these spiritual influences that disrupt friendships and relationships and organizations and churches. And if the apostles themselves were not immune to it, then we are not immune to it either. So what do we do? Ephesians 6.11 tells us this. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. See, too many times we, we don't give the devil his due. Now, I'm not saying we should be afraid of the devil because the Bible says that greater is he who is in me than he who is in this world. However, the devil is scheming. He doesn't just react. He has these long set out plans and he schemes how he can bring us down through the spirit of Antichrist which is already in the world. We must seek to understand and respect spiritual influences so we do not remain ignorant and be unaware of the devil's schemes against the body of Christ. Another tragedy of a spirit working through people is when we fail to confront conflict when we fail to put a stand against something that is coming against the work of Christ in an individual or in an entire church. When this happens, when we fail to confront conflict, again, the conflict is against the Spirit, not the person. But when we fail to confront conflict, we inadvertently give power to that Spirit to move through this person to intimidate others. Again, remember it's not the person, but the Spirit working through a person that brings division in the body of Christ. When we fail to confront the spiritual influence, the Spirit is allowed to move freely in a group or in an organization or in a church unchecked. The Spirit begins to intimidate others into thinking that there's nothing that you can do to solve the situation or to remove the Spirit. Consequently, what tends to happen is that instead of, instead of people confronting the conflict, which is fueled by a spirit, 
they don't confront the issue by speaking directly to the person that they have an issue with. They say things like this. I'll just be the better person. I'll be the better Christian. Or I'll just forget about it. Or I just won't let this bother me. The problem is that if we don't deal with conflict, it does not go away. And it gets much worse. Because now it goes underground which causes more destruction than when it's out in the open. The reason why we confront things above the surface is so that it can be dealt with immediately and resolved. And we can come together as the body of Christ. Jesus tells us how to deal with conflict in a God-glorifying way that gives Him the glory for coming back together. Matthew 18.15 Jesus says, Moreover, if your brother or sister sins against you, Go and tell him or her your fault between you and them alone. And if he hears you, you have gained your brother. If she hears you, you have gained your sister. You see, we don't, the problem is, is not, we don't go there to tell them that we're right or to prove that they're wrong. We go to confront that to, to gain a brother, to gain a relationship back. We confront others so that we can strengthen a relationship by working through forgiveness by the grace and power of Jesus. When conflict is dealt with immediately, the power of this spirit of division is broken. And if this first action does not bring resolution, we don't talk about this person to others and step into judgment. Jesus gives us biblical steps that we can take with the hopes of resolving the situation to once again regain this relationship. Matthew 18, verse 16. But if he will not hear, take with you one or two more that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word may be established. You see, each step centers on the goal of bringing resolution by going to the person directly with whom you have a conflict. But the thing that derails this more often than not is that is when we go to others or we keep a record of wrongs but fail to speak up and confront the problem. Matthew 18, verse 17. And if he refuses to hear them, that means you brought someone with you. If he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen or a tax collector. The goal is never to get to this last resort. The goal is never to say, God, I tried, I tried to try this. No, I don't want to have any part with them. The goal is that God has committed to us the ministry of reconciliation. The goal is to believe in reconciliation and do whatever we can to restore relationships to work towards resolution by confronting conflict immediately and diffusing the Spirit's power to divide. We should be protectors of our relationships with others. If anything is blocking the flow of Christ between any of us, we must address it right away. In fact, it shows our love for one another that we are willing to confront anything that affects our relationship. However, the spirit of division will tell you the exact opposite. Maybe you've heard this before. Maybe you've heard this voice. It says things like, don't say anything because they won't listen. Don't bring up the issue because you'll just make matters worse. Or if you say something, it means you're weak. It means you're not a good Christian. Understand that this is the voice of the spirit of the Antichrist, 
who wants to keep people divided and keep the body of Christ in disarray. When we refuse to deal with conflict in a God-glorifying way, like we are taught in Matthew chapter 18, we allow this spirit of division to gain more power and control and manipulation over others and eventually over the life of a church. Now listen, it happens in all churches. Some, of them, some churches deal with this in a God-glorifying way and some don't. When people don't confront things head-on, when they don't deal with issues as soon as they arise, they tend to talk to others outside of those involved, which allows the Spirit's influences to multiply and affect others. It's like the Spirit has tentacles that go out, and if it's not dealt with, it begins to affect many others around. Oftentimes in a church or an organization, when issues arise between two people, if they don't take the issue to each other to resolve it, they will be tempted to share it with the pastor or to share it with the leader or to share it with the boss. This is a passive-aggressive approach that is fueled by this same spirit, manipulating as many as it can by infecting others with offense and a judgmental spirit. Rather than dealing with a conflict head-on, people tell on another person to a boss or to a superior or to a pastor. Uh, last, another place I worked at before, not a church but an organization, we had this spirit of division going on and we would have meetings to try to get to the end of it. And in the meeting, people would not speak up and, stand and state their complaint. But when the meeting was done, they would go sidebar with people on the side and complain over here and sidebar over here. And they, those people became known as internal assassins which means they would never say direct things direct to the person, but they would try to cause these sidebars and assassinate an organization from within. We can't do that. God tells us it's out of love that we confront things because we want to restore a relationship. We want to restore an organization. We want to give glory to God in all that we do. See, when people just tell the leader or tell the boss or tell the pastor... Their hope is that the pastor will take care of something that they did not have the courage to take care of themselves. Therefore, this is already an unfair way to handle this with the person that they have an issue with. It's not the pastor's job to take everyone else's concern to the person where there's conflict. I'm happy to help any way I can, but I want you to understand what goes on a lot in an organization, whether it's a school, an administration, a business, or a church. We are called, all called, to deal with conflict. If we would understand the biblical teaching of dealing with conflict, we would not allow this spirit to wreak havoc in our relationships and in our churches. 2 Timothy 1, verse 7. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Indeed, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but He has given us a spirit, the Holy Spirit, who is full of power and love and grace and forgiveness and restoration and reconciliation. That is the spirit that God intends us to have and intends us to be influenced by. We should not fear confrontation, but rather we should be motivated by love and a sound mind to seek reconciliation and unity in the body of Christ. When we come before the Lord in all humility, acknowledging our faults, as I do, and I make many mistakes, I continue to make my mistakes, 
I know I'll, I will continue to make mistakes. Why? Because I'm human and all have sinned and we all have a sinful nature. So when we come before God in our humility, acknowledging our faults and acknowledging our complete dependence on Him, He forgives us. He covers us with His grace. He wraps us in His perfect love. And He sends us forth now into the world to, to be dispensers of that same grace, of that same love, of that same forgiveness. That's God working through us in the world. This is how we honor God. By following His commandments. We love the Lord with all our heart and soul and mind and strength. And we love our neighbor as ourselves, which means we deal with things so that we can stay united as the body of Christ. That's our calling in this life. In this, God gets all the glory. And the body of Christ is strengthened around the world. Heavenly Father, I thank You for Your Word, which sears our minds and sears our hearts. Lord God, I pray that Your Word, even today, as it brings conviction to us, that we would be open to You, that we would trust You enough to be vulnerable to You, for You to show things to us, to reveal things to us that are not right. And God, if there's something between us and another brother or sister, God, first show it to us and help us to be courageous enough to admit it to You, God, so that You can take it away, so that we can repent, and we can seek to resolve some things so that we can come together as the body of Christ. For we seek to be transparent with You, God. We seek to love one another. And we seek to give You glory by coming together in unity as the body of Christ. We thank You for trusting us with this opportunity to do so. May You bless us. May You bring healing to us so that when we get to next week and we take communion, we can take it with a pure heart knowing that You have resolved things or You have begun the process or You've begun the process for us to begin forgiveness. Wherever it is, God, help us to begin so that we can go forward in Your power and in Your love. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.